podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. I'm here today with Jeff Siegel of Peachtree Hoops and Early Bird Rights. If anything should ever happen to Brad Rowland, Jeff is going to be the man at Peachtree Hoops. But we don't want anything bad. We don't want anything bad. Yeah, no coups, no no overthrows. Not yet, but I'm I'm still working on that. I'm working on gathering the support to uh, to overthrow Bradley. Okay, you you keep working slack, and we'll see what we can get together. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll see. Uh, at this point, I think he's he's better at dealing with the fans than I am. So maybe we'll <laughs> we'll leave him as sort of a uh, figurehead, and then I'll just sort of do everything else. You could just be the Dick Cheney behind the scenes, really running the show. Yep, that's pretty much it. I'm not going to shoot anybody, but <laughs> if I uh, if I could do the rest of that, maybe uh, no wars either. I'm not going to start a war with like the Charlotte Hornets. But if you were going to start a war with one NBA team, that wouldn't be a bad place to start. I think I'd start with the Utah Jazz. That's my <laughs> that's my my take is that I would start with the Utah Jazz. Their the their SB Nation site would be the one that I would target first. Okay. Just to make the world a little bit of a better place. <laughs> All right. So uh, big developments in Hawks world tonight. Uh, I kind of wanted to start before we even get into any of the players and just kind of deal with the, the trade in abstraction for the number four pick. So to recap, what we're talking about with that number four pick, the assets that went out were number eight, Oh, good. Let me show you. <laughs> Help me finish this. Was the, the number eight assets pick. that went out were number eight, number 17 that number they just 30. got from Brooklyn in the yep. Allen Crab trade, yep. uh, number, number 30. 35, yep. which was their own second round pick that they earned from this year. Um, the Cleveland pick that they had trade that they got from Cleveland for Kyle Korver uh, maybe a couple years ago. And now that's going to New Orleans for, for number four. And they also got back Solomon Hill, who is on the roster for $12.8 million next year and then expires in 2020. Um, and then they also got back number 57, which they later moved on. So we don't really have to worry about that. Um, I believe that was everything. So Solomon Hill, he's under contract for one more year, as you said, 2020. And the Cleveland pick was protected one through 10 for next year's draft, and if it doesn't convey as a first, it'll convey as two seconds, which, you know, Cleveland is, isn't the greatest NBA team in the world at this point, so it seems like it would turn into two seconds, but the protections themselves aren't that strong. Yeah, I mean, it's only protected one through ten, so if something happens and Cleveland either is good or they get really unlucky in the lottery, like if they're seventh and then a bunch of teams jump them and all of a sudden they're eleventh, you know, there are, because of the flattened lottery odds, I think that's – it's not like a worry, but if Cleveland had a good year out of nowhere because, you know, nobody expects them to have a good year, but if it happens, you know, then that might be a first-round pick to, to go going to New Orleans, which would be unfortunate, obviously, from the Hawks' perspective. I think everybody around the league sort of assumes that those are going to be two second-round picks, uh, but, you know, certainly it would be great for New Orleans if it was, uh, you know, if it did end up being a first-round pick, but for, for – what we're talking about here, I think we can just go ahead and assume that those are two seconds. All right, sounds good. So taking it in total, what do you think about that price? I mean, in a vacuum, it's probably not that great a trade. I mean, it's just that's a lot to give up to move up from number 10 to number four, to give up 17, 35, 
two, two second from number, picks in the from number eight from number eight to number four. From number eight, you're right because they didn't. They took number ten with they reddish. 10. I just assumed that that was eight because they always they would have been mocked for number eight to reddish for the for the entire pre-draft <laughs> process. So they moved up four spots in the draft. Yeah. They sent out one first-round pick in number seventeen. Yep. Two second or three second-round picks basically, and their own thirty-five, and then the two Cleveland picks. They got back 57, which is sort of a, a, a nothing pick only because that's so far down and, and you rarely get NBA players, you know, after probably 50 or so. Uh, and then they took on $12.8 million of Solomon Hill, who is not particularly good and is probably more like a minimum guy. So that's at least $10, 11000000 million in, in sort of dead money, quote unquote, because that's, you know, money that he's probably not going to earn on the court next year, but is going to be paid to him anyway. You know, so it's a it's a haul. Like they gave up quite a bit to to get DeAndre Hunter. Obviously, they wanted him. It was you know he was he only worked out for one team, and it was the Atlanta Hawks. And they sort of had there was some sort of understanding. It seemed like between those two sides that he was he was going to be a hawk if if they could make it work. And they made it work, but they certainly paid through the nose to do so. Yeah, and it's kind of a. It's not very fun as fans to try to balance other people's money, but you can kind of see, you know, with some of the second round picks that they sent out for cash, uh, you can kind of see that balancing some of the dead money that they had for Solomon Hill that they're going to have to pay Hill now. And, you know, they had the cap space to do it. I mean, that cap space really probably wasn't going to be utilized by serving some other purpose other than, you know, taking some sort of bad contract. They're really not in the, in a place where do you, or maybe you think differently. Do you think that they could have used that as some sort of productive means for adding a player? No, I mean, this is what they were supposed to use their cap space for this summer. That's what they used it for in the Allen Crabb trade. Now this is a second trade to take on Solomon Hill's money. They still have $14.3 million, depending on what they do with Dwayne Dedman. You know, so it's, it's, this is sort of what they were always going to do and what they sort of, it, what made the most sense to do something like this, to take on, bad money to better your draft assets, whether that's in this year's draft as they did now, or with the Allen Crab trade where they got future picks from Brooklyn. Um, you know, I think that's, that's what they should be doing with their, with their available cap space. This one, it just seems like maybe they didn't get quite as much value as they wanted, as they should, maybe could have in a, an absolute vacuum, but they wanted DeAndre Hunter. And so like, that's, you know, we've seen that Schlenk is willing to, make his moves for his guys, even if they're unpopular moves. Like last year's unpopular move was to trade back out of the Luka Doncic, you know, spot at number three and pick up Trey Young at number five. And they ended up with Cam Reddish as a result of that this year. And so that's, you know, now you've got those two guys against Doncic and you would, the, the value play at that point was a little bit dubious when they made that trade a year ago. And, and, you know, I certainly thought they should have just taken Luca and, and thank their lucky stars that they got the best player in the draft at number three, <laughs> but the, he's willing to do these trades. He's willing to do trades where he thinks the value is. And, you know, that that one seems to have at least worked out a little bit. I mean, I think Trey has proven so far that he's either the second or third best rookie in this class, depending, you know, depending on how you feel about Jaron Jackson jr. Moving forward, Cam Reddish, they got it number 10. That pick could have been much better than it was. Obviously, it fell a little bit in the lottery down to down to number 10. That didn't quite work out as well as they probably had hoped when they made that trade, but it worked out 
you know, fine. I mean, they got a, a, another top 10 pick. They can, you know, Reddish sort of fits what they want to do going forward with his abilities. And so, you know, I think he's, you know, the biggest thing is that Schlenk's willing to do things that are unconventional to get the guys that he wants. And he did it with Trey Young and he's done it now with DeAndre Hunter. And it's the way it worked out with Young, you sort of have to just sort of trust him and go, yeah, this might work out with Hunter. And maybe we look back on it and say, yeah, they were they were very smart to give up all of those assets. Right now, it doesn't look like that just because of, of the, the flat nature of the draft and the fact that they could have stayed put or they could have done something better with the assets that they that they sent out in this deal. Plus, you know, and the cap space on, you know, $12.5 million or so on Solomon Hill. That, you know, that cap space matters. That could have been, you know, another first round pick from somebody else, but instead they use it to help themselves move up. You know, it's it's from a value perspective, I don't love it, but it's something that they, you have to overpay to move up in the draft and they wanted to move up and get Hunter. So sort of the way it goes. Yeah, it's funny that if you look back at the lottery, it felt like the Hawks had bad luck relative to that Dallas pick. Like you kind of, you mentioned it, that they kind of probably expected it would be a little bit higher. And the funny thing is, if it had been a little bit higher, if it had been seven or eight, they probably would have picked Reddish anyways. And Yeah, probably. I mean, like they had their they got, own. That was the guy they wanted. Yeah, they were thinking about probably, they were probably thinking of taking him at number eight if they had stuck there. Yep. And then it just happened that, you know, the way the, the board fell, he happened to fall to 10. And, yeah. you know, from that perspective, they, they it sort of worked out in, in, in on their own personal board, they probably got better value than they would have expected from both Hunter and Reddish. I would imagine if they traded all of this stuff for Hunter at number four, they probably had him at number three on their board because John Morant is probably not on their board because they've got Trey Young. So I would imagine it went Zion, RJ, Hunter for them on their board. And so they yep. traded up and got their number three guy. And then Reddish, you know, because they're not going to take Kobe White or Darius Garland, Reddish was much higher on their board than number 10, was probably higher on their board even than, than number eight. So I think, you know, from that perspective, this, you know, the draft, the players that they chose were higher on their board most likely than where they actually got picked. It's just how you how they ended up with the number four pick is a little bit dubious, but, you know, certainly you, you can't fault them for, you know, trying to jump up and get their guy. Yeah, I mean, Schlink said it outright. He he had Reddish higher on his board than number 10, and he said on more than one occasion when he was talking to the media tonight, he felt like he got lucky. He said it was it was better to be lucky than good, and, you know, he, he cited their good fortune on more than one occasion, so. Uh, they, they, he definitely felt like they got value at number 10 for sure. Uh, how about DeAndre Hunter, the player? I mean, I really like him. I thought that he and, and Jarrett Culver were sort of 4A and 4B on my, you know, sort of in a vacuum board, not necessarily for the Hawks, but just in, in general. You know, I, I thought those, those two were very interesting in terms of comparing and contrasting their skill set. And, and, and in terms of what Hunter brings to this Atlanta team, he brings – some modicum of defense. I mean, he's very, he was a very good defensive player at Virginia. They were a very good defensive team as a whole. He's very conservative on that end. He doesn't like, like to jump passing lanes. He doesn't, you know, try to chase highlight blocks or chase highlight steals. He's not somebody who's going to make plays on that end of the floor, but he's always going to be in the right position. He's always going to slide well. He's always going to communicate with his teammates. He's going to do all of the, the team fundamental things to to help a, a defense become great and you know they need all the defensive help they can get we saw how how poor they were on that end last season you know this this season it seems or this this draft process it looked like they were 
sort of looking a little bit more defensive. We, we, we're talking about Hunter now. We'll get to Bruno Fernando later, who's a, you know, a, a bit more of a defensive prospect as well. So, you know, I think they sort of understand that they did need some defenders at some point, and Hunter represents that in a big way. Yeah, Hunter's kind of fascinating in that he's an older player. Part of the reason that he's an older player is because he broke his wrist, his left wrist. I guess that's his non-shooting wrist, right? Last season yeah. before the tournament. UVA's, you know, was a number one team last season at some point. Not last season as uh, the season that ended in 2018. They were a number one team, the number one seed in the tournament, lost to number 16, uh, UMBC, because their defense fell to pieces. And, you know, of course, another national champion like Mari Spellman last year. Uh, but the, you mentioned that, that he's sort of a conservative defensive player. And I'm, I'm fascinated by UVA's pace and how, you know, it impacted Hunter. You're like, I kind of feel like you tend to gamble less when you play that kind of pace. That it's kind of, you know, it's kind of devastating to your team if you're trying to play, you know, 35 seconds of defense and bog the game down and make it slow, you know, to, to have a, a gamble turn into a you know a defensive mistake you, you just can't you somehow that's more impactful when you're trying to play a slow game like UVA is and I, I think that kind of plays into it a little bit I mean I know that when you talk about things like steals rates and block rates you know those are adjusted per possession but I, I just feel like when you play that kind of a slow pace it becomes less of a game where those things happen that just you're, you're playing a game where it's more about position than actual steals and influencing a shot rather than blocking a shot because there's there's more time to think and less sort of unexpected situations that might happen in a fast-paced game yeah when i say that he's a conservative defensive player that's not a knock on him it's just yeah. a characteristic of him sure it's not bud, necessarily bud would love a, him. yeah it's not necessarily like <laughs> a bad thing that he's conservative versus being aggressive Right. You can be very good if you're aggressive as long as you take the right gambles and you're willing to to live with the the results of of missed gambles. but if he's if he's unwilling to to take those gambles and we're not, we don't know that he will be unwilling to take them throughout his NBA career. We just know that throughout his time at UVA, that was sort of his that was the mo on him and that was the mo on their entire defense, like you were saying that UVA does not. You know, they don't get out and try to run in transition. They're very slow. They played at one of the slowest paces in, in the country. They were much more about grinding possessions out. That's what we saw really in that national championship game against Texas Tech and, you know, how much of a grinded out game that was. You know, Hunter's a big part of that. The fact that he buys into that sort of system would, would indicate that he can buy into, you know, a more aggressive system if he had to and, and play, you know, play better in, in a system like that. So I think, you know, I think he's going to be a, a very versatile defensive piece. He's going to be able to guard threes and fours. You, he might even be able to, to bang with fives or even, you know, get out on the perimeter with, with ones and twos. And so, you know, he's going to be the sort of fungible, versatile defensive piece who can sort of do whatever they need him to do. But uh, not necessarily at this point, we don't know that he's going to be somebody who's, you know, overly aggressive in passing lanes and trying to generate offense with his defense. Yeah, it's funny. If you look at the Hawks core, it's like, you know, who are their five most important players at this point? And it's like, okay, Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Hunter, Reddish, and John Collins. And that's, that's not really an NBA starting five, but... Hunter might be the four in those lineups, and that might be a lineup that you use to close games. Does that seem plausible? Yeah, I think if, yeah, I think Hunter would be the four if you were trying to close games right now. 
Um, you know, maybe it, it depends on whether they bring back Dwayne Dedman because he'd have to be out there uh, at some, you know, at, at some juncture, I think, to close games just because of if you're playing Hunter and Collins together right now <laughs> as we sit here, that's going to be a tough, that's going to be just a tough combination, I think, defensively, even though Hunter can be very good on that end of the floor. He's not the greatest rebounder in the world, and you were, you were going to need that at the floor, and Collins gets a lot of highlight offensive rebounds, but is not the best defensive rebounder either. And so you're gonna get you're gonna get hurt on the on the defensive glass with that with that quintet out there together. I think Deadman would have to be part of that if he is on the team co- going forward. You know whether you know whether some of the veterans, Kent Bazemore, Alan Crabb, if those guys are gonna be out there as well, that's that's also part of it. But in terms of their young core, I think that's the five. Those are the five guys that they're sort of building around moving forward. All right. Uh... It's, it seems strange to just talk about a pick and not the trade that preceded it, but uh, the Hawks had number 10, and no trades happened. They just used it and picked Cam Reddish. So uh, what do you expect out of Cam Reddish, the player? I mean, I think he's he's more of an enigma. If they're, they're, Since they went with a, a sh- more of a sure thing than, uh, in DeAndre Hunter, I think Hunter is probably the surest thing in this draft other than Zion Williamson in terms of just you know what he's going to be. He's going to be a very good defensive player who doesn't take a lot of gambles but plays within the system, plays solidly. He's going to be able to hit some threes. He's got a little bit of a handle to get to get you know get to the rim if somebody's closing out on him hard, but he's not necessarily like a go-to offensive option. Whereas Reddish is, you know, he had a really poor year at at Duke, was didn't really work, you know, didn't it didn't work out for him as the third option there behind Williamson and and RJ Barrett. He's, you know, ostensibly can shoot the ball from outside had some you know really difficult finishing you know numbers his his numbers finishing around the basket were were really downright awful like just one of the worst you know lottery picks in terms of finishing at the basket like ever um you know his his physical profile defensively is interesting he's got some you know he's got some issues moving on on the perimeter he's got some issues with strength you know, you'd like him to have one of those things, either be quick or be strong. But if you're sort of neither, that's that's going to be a problem. You know, I think he's more of a project than most number ten picks. But I think they're they're sort of banking on upside, knowing that by taking Hunter, they've got sort of the the safety net in DeAndre Hunter. And then if Reddish blows up, that's great. And if he doesn't, then uh, it, it's not it doesn't kill them as much as it could have otherwise. Yeah, Schlenk mentioned a couple of things tonight, and I was kind of at least with the first one thinking the same, you know, in terms of finishing Duke had such a weird team this season and there wasn't a whole lot of spacing. And, and Schlenk mentioned that, you know, at the NBA level, he's going to have a little bit more space to finish in the lane as compared to what he had to, at Duke. Uh, he also brought up, and I don't know if we're making excuses at this point, but he said that, you know, Reddish dealt with some injuries this year and, you know, he thought that Reddish, he looked positively on Reddish for making sacrifices uh, that, you know, what Duke had this year wasn't necessarily the optimal setup for Cam Reddish as opposed to some other players. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. I think both the injury and the mentality were, were things that you could look at and sort of point to as either not excuses, but just sort of, those are things that you could point to as to why his, his, uh, his season was not particularly good. I mean, I think the, the core muscle injury, the hip sort of, core or hip flexor or whatever he had going on right in the middle of his body like that, like that's going to affect 
you know, it, it, it seems like it's kind of weird, but in that part of your body, I think that affects way more of your game than, than you know, a, an extremity injury. Like if you, you know, have some hand issues or, or foot issues, you can sort of move, move around those things. But with your core, it's just sort of, it's, you know, obviously it's right in the middle. You have a, you know, a lot of things depend on that to, to help you move around, to help you do all the things that you need to do as a basketball player. So it's, it's not, imp I, I think it's not impossible to me that he would, that he's going to be better after sort of going through the surgery that he had, I think a month ago or so. And he's going to be, you know, he'll, he should be better on, on the, on the back end once he gets healthy. The mentality thing makes sense to me. I think it, it's becoming a third option when he most likely in his prep career was always the first option because he would have been the best player on, on any of the teams that he played with in high school or in AAU ball you know, or, or at least number two, but to be the number three option in an offense that was really not very good. You know, Coach K didn't build an offense for these guys, like at all. Like you watched, you watched <laughs> them play and they really didn't take advantage of their, of their players particularly well. And, you know, that's probably part of why they didn't have as much, you know, success in, in the tournament as they, as they otherwise could have. I think, you know, you, you look at a, even a guy like Zion Williamson who ran like 20 pick and rolls and was the role man in like 10. And like, that's unbelievable because Zion Williamson was the best player in, in the country. Like, how do you not have the ball in his hands running pick and roll all the time? That was because Coach K didn't want to do that. Like, or that's not what their offense was. And so, you know, their offense was archaic to say the least. The spacing was not very good. Cam Reddish is going to be a lot better, I think, in a pro-style offense after the injury sort of subsides and after he's able to, to fully recover from that, you know, I think there's a lot of, of positive signs on, on that front, at least. Uh, let's see here. The, the Hawks have a very interesting roster. I want to get to Fernando at one point, but just to switch it up a little bit at this point. If you look at what the Hawks have on their roster, you mentioned Dwayne Debman a minute ago, and he's obviously a, a free agent this summer. So if we count the players on the Hawks roster who are ostensibly not free agents, Trey Young, Jalen Adams, and I know there's an asterisk with Adams, so we can deal with that in a second. But Trey Young, Jalen Adams, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Bembry, Kent Bazemore, Alan Crabb, Solomon Hill, Alex Len, John Collins, Bruno Fernando, Amari Spellman and Miles Plumley. So that's 14 names there. That's a very full roster before we even get to July 1. What do you think happens in terms of free agency, in terms of buyouts, in terms of beefing up any of the positions that you don't necessarily have covered within those 14 players? Uh, maybe starting with Jalen Adams and the point guard situation. What do you you know, what's his situation and what do you expect to come of it over the next couple of months? I mean, I would expect that Jalen Adams is not on the roster come October. I think that would be a mistake. I think he's not, he's just not an NBA player. Like it's, it's unfortunate. Like he can shoot the ball a little bit, but that's all he can do. And at the point guard spot, you just need more than that from a backup point guard. And, you know, when they were coming into the draft with number 35, I sort of thought, 
I thought that that might be an interesting spot to take a guy like Ty Jerome, who obviously you know ended up in the first round, so he wasn't available there. They you know they traded out of it before they could get there anyway, and then when they traded back in to get Bruno Fernando, they decided to go with a center. I think they need a backup point guard, like a real like NBA caliber backup point guard, and and Adams to me is just not that kind of player. He's not dynamic enough with the ball in his hands. He's obviously a, a porous defender to say the least. Um, you know, if he so if he can shoot and he can't do anything else at the point guard spot, and he's not big enough to really defend in any way, even if he's not particularly skilled on that end, he's just not big either. And so you just really, he's he's such a, a negative, I think, at the NBA level that I don't believe that he's an NBA player, an NBA caliber player. So I would be looking to move on from him and use that roster spot, use the money that they do have left uh, to find a backup point guard who can maybe even a sort of combo backup point guard who can play with Trey Young in certain lineups. But, you know, like we're, we're going to get to in a minute, they've got a ton of wings. So you don't necessarily even need a guy who can play with Trey Young. Maybe you just have a pure backup point guard who can play 16 minutes a game when, when Trey's not in the game. And uh, here's a good time to plug early bird right. So what is Jalen Adams' uh, contract situation? He has a $1.4 million contract for next season, but all but 100, it's only 100,000 guaranteed. And so they can cut him uh, pretty much at any time for just that 100,000. If they leave him on the team for too long, then he, his, his contract becomes fully guaranteed. When exactly that is, it's either the beginning of the season or July 31st. And I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. I want to say it's July 31st, but I think they, they have the, they'll have a chance to go through free agency and look and see what they have what they have at the backup point guard spot before they make that decision on Adams. I would think that they'll just take that that one hundred thousand dollar hit, pay him his money, and, and let him walk. That would be what I would do, just even from a roster roster spot you know perspective. They you know like you said, they've got fourteen guys with Adams, and if you're replacing him with a real backup point guard, they've got fourteen guys. Is he going to be worth keeping around as their fifteenth guy? You know, especially with Dwayne Dedman maybe coming back as well to fill that 15th spot. I don't think that Adams will be. I, I would I would make sure that he is is not on the team before that before his contract fully guarantees and just pay him his $100,000 to to uh, go find employment elsewhere. Yeah, and we're. I mean, if you look historically at what the Hawks have done here under Schlenk, and it includes Adams. You know what he's what he's done for a couple of years running now is. Uh, get point guard depth out of the two-way contract situation, right? Because they did that with Josh Majette, and he was kind of the third point guard in case of emergency. And then last year, Jeremy Lin was on the roster, and Jalen Adams was the third point guard as a two-way player. So they might uh, – I mean, it wouldn't be a shock if they did that again. You know, like you said, they go find somebody who's a, a legitimate full-time sort of backup point guard, but then – get further depth on a, on a roster that's heavier on the wing just by using your two ways to get kind of that third point guard. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think Trey can play, you know, his 30 to 32 minutes or so a game. You get a pure backup point guard to fill out the rest of those minutes. You bring you either, if you want to bring Adams back on a two way, because he is, is, you know, they, they're interested in, in keeping him around. That would be fine as well. But if he, you know, finds, you know, if he catches on with another team, that's fine. There's going to be a million two-way point guards that they can find, you know, either in the G League or undrafted free agents from the the draft that is is just about to finish as we're talking right now. 
you know, they're, they're, they're going to have options for that two-way point guard spot, but I think getting a real backup point guard would be, would be something that I would target in free agency for sure. Okay, so to refresh our list here, you know, just sort of looking at the wing, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Bembry, and this is, you know, we've got Herter and Hunter, DeAndre and DeAndre. We're going to have all sorts of confusing situations. And I messed up my list because Herter and Hunter look so much alike earlier tonight, just on paper, Herter and Hunter. It's like, I thought I had written it twice and I'd only written it once. But okay, Wings, Herter, Hunter, Reddish, Bembry, Bazemore, Crab, Hill. That's seven Wings. Two that were kind of salary dumps. Bazemore kind of has a big contract for one more season is there any kind of buyout situation that you might foresee here you know seven wings is a lot i'm sure if you're solomon hill or alan crab and the hawks come to you and say you know look uh we're not necessarily going to be able to play you much because here's what we're trying to develop uh, i don't know it seems like some of those guys might not be thrilled yeah, I think that makes sense. I think some of those guys might entertain a buyout if they decided to, you know, if, if the Hawks decided to go to them and say, hey, we need the open roster spot. We're probably not going to play you too much because we have these younger wings who we want to to develop, especially Herder, Reddish, and Hunter are sort of part of their core moving forward. Bazemore is, is you know, has the, the equity of having been on the team for the last few years. Bembry is still interesting in, in some capacity. I think he was one of their better wings last year in terms of, you know, his first full year healthy. Crab gives them a lot more than Solomon Hill does. I think Hill would be the target for me. If, if we're thinking about, you know, a, a buyout candidate, Hill would be the one guy who sort of brings the least to the table out of the, that group of seven wings that you just mentioned. But on the other hand, he's a, he's a, he's an actual like small forward sized player in a way that, you know, Hunter and Reddish probably, but of course those guys are rookies. And then you get back into the guys who were on the team last year who, you know, they, without Torian Prince, they really struggled to have any small forwards. Bazemore, Bembry, Herder, like those guys are too small really to to really play the, the small forward position. Alan Crabb is not that much bigger. He's not going to be able to do that either. He's more of a shooting guard. So if you really, if you split it up between sort of twos and threes, they've got four twos and three threes in Hill, Hunter, and Reddish. So maybe that's a, a, an interesting reason to keep Hill around just as a veteran wing who can who can sort of sop up minutes when the rookies aren't doing very well. You can also find that on the on the free agency market. You can take a, you know, work a buyout with with Solomon Hill to move him on somewhere else and then use the extra cap space that you get back in the in the Hill buyout to find, you know, to to find a, a wing, a veteran wing, a guy similar to what Justin Anderson brought to them last year, somebody who doesn't play all the time, doesn't play that much, but is just sort of a veteran presence on the wing who you can throw in there to, to calm things down. Vince Carter played a little bit of that role as well last year. So, you know, I think Hill would be the guy I would target as a, as a buyout candidate, but it probably, it's not something that needs to happen during the off season because you can hold up to 20 guys during the off season. So that's not a problem. But as soon as we sort of get into what their roster is going to look like for 2019-20, the earlier you can buy that guy out, the, er, the more money is out there on the market for him to try to find another job. So earlier tonight, Brad Rowland, you know, mentioned an idea that I sort of had along the same, same terms a couple of weeks ago. The Hawks have three free agents 
That's what I'm counting right here. Dwayne Dedman, Justin Anderson, Vince Carter. And we already mentioned that the roster is kind of cram-packed at this moment. There's another free agent. The biggest name that you're missing is Isaac Humphreys, of course. You cannot forget about Isaac Humphreys. He has a $1.6 million cap hold if they make him a restricted free agent, which I don't expect they're going to do. But technically, Isaac Humphreys is a free agent this summer. I'm sorry. (laughs) He's the most important of the group. I didn't mean to forget you, Ike. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... So Brad mentioned, and I sort of thought the same thing earlier this month, you know, is Dwayne Dedman a candidate to maybe get paid heavily for one season, sort of a la J.J. Redick? You know, the Sixers, I think, were more in more of a win-now situation when they did that than the Hawks are at this point. But, I mean, it, you look at the roster and you what do you think about the prospects for, for re-signing Dedman and, you know, what would the motivation be? Uh, if they do or don't. I mean, I think, I think before tonight, the 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 the, the idea that Deadman would be back with the team made a lot more sense. And then now that they only have fourteen point three million dollars in cap space, they're not they don't have a, enough money to just give him one balloon payment. You know, in in the you know eighteen million dollar range, even if that's something that they wanted to do, maybe that's too much money for him. Maybe that's not something that that makes sense. Maybe fourteen point three million dollars is enough to get that done. They can also you know go up to one hundred and seventy five percent of his of his previous salary under the early bird exception, which would get them to like eleven or twelve million dollars roughly, something in through there. So they can go that route if they would like to. That would keep their his nine point four million dollar cap hold on the books and pretty much zap the rest you know most of the rest of their cap space they have you know five five or so million dollars left right i don't know that i don't know if 14 million dollars is enough for him as one big balloon payment or he'd rather you know find a 12 million dollar deal elsewhere if that's even available to him like it's, it's hard to know exactly what his market's going to be i think you know the big comparison for deadman right now is brooke lopez he's sort of a a poorer man's version of brooke lopez in terms of his shooting ability his defensive ability in, in the paint he can sort of be that three and d center that a lot of teams are, are interested in because brooke did so well in that role over the last you know over this past year with milwaukee Milwaukee, you can you've seen what they've been doing over the last couple of days. They're clearing out all kinds of cap space because even the nine point two million dollar mid-level exception was not enough for to bring Brook Lopez back. And there are sort of inklings coming out of Milwaukee that he's going to want, you know, fifteen fourteen million dollars, which is a ton of money. But maybe that helps us sort of, you know, see what Deadman might get on the on the open market next this this coming summer. If Lopez is, is a $15 million center, Deadman might be a $12 million center, an $11 million center, sort of a cheaper version of what Brooke brings to the table. So if, he's, if, he's, if he can find a longer-term deal at $12 million a year, that probably will supersede a Hawks offer of $14 million. I hate the word supersede because I can't spell it. I always want to put – I always want to end it C-E-D-E instead of S-E-D-E. It just doesn't look right to me. I don't I, know. I think it is C E D E. No, I think Isn't it's S D. I think it's yeah, exactly. I think it's S E S E D E at the end. Oh, it is. Holy moly! I've been spelling that wrong my entire life. <laughs> All right. I've li- I've never spelled that word right in my entire life. I can tell you right now. Yeah, I've had some some struggles with that one. Um, well, there you go. That's one thing I learned today. <laughs> uh, 
no more Isaac Humphreys talk, but uh, Vince Carter, Justin Anderson, any thoughts there? I mean, if, if Carter wants to come back for the minimum, I don't even think they have a, a roster spot for him really at this point. I think he'd, he'd be better on, on another team. I think if they, if they want to bring him back, they can find a, 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 a place for him, but I don't. I, because of the way that their roster sort of has fallen over these uh, over the last few days with the, with the trades that they've made, if they buy out Hill, maybe that makes a little bit more sense for Carter to come back. But you know, at, at this point, you know, it might be it might be time for him to to move on. Anderson is is in the same boat. They're not gonna you know, they're not gonna tender him a, a qualifying offer. He's almost in all likelihood gonna take a minimum somewhere. Whether it's with the Hawks or not, I don't. I don't think it's with the Hawks because they don't need what he brings to the table on the wing anymore. With with some of the guys that they've both drafted and traded for, that Anderson's his his presence doesn't make a ton of sense anymore, and and he can catch on uh, as a minimum player on a, on another team, probably a more competitive team. Vince to the Lakers. Yeah, I mean they need minimum salaries. I think Justin Anderson to the Lakers also would be fine. Like just anybody who was willing to play for the minimum, but might be able to give them 10 minutes, 15 minutes a game. Like, you know, we saw what, what Vince could do last year as a, as a, a minimum player. He was able to give, give the Hawks, you know, whatever, 15, 18 minutes a game. As, you know, as he gets older, maybe that cuts down to 12 to 15. But, you know, the, the Lakers could use literally anybody who can give them 12 to 15 minutes a game. All right. Uh, I think I'm ready to get back to draftees then. Bruno Fernando. He was in Atlanta last year for a workout, in Atlanta this year again for a workout. The Hawks now have the most Maryland team in the entire universe. It's University of Maryland Graduate School Program in Basketball. Alex Len, Kevin Herter, Bruno Fernando. What do you think of him? I mean, I think he's an athlete. I think he's he's somebody who is interesting from my I mold, you know, can they mold him into something more than just a, a jump and run athlete is somebody who can only play right under the basket on both ends of the floor. I think that was something that, you know, John Collins had more skill when he came into the, when he came into the league, when he came into the Hawks in 2017, but he had that sort of a similar reputation of just sort of being a, an anchor on both ends of the floor, somebody who really could only play within a few feet of the basket. Obviously, he had a little bit more skill. He had more skill in the post and, and such like that. So you could see that he was more, you know, just more skilled in general. But Fernando, I think, brings a lot of the just sort of run and jump athleticism, something that you know, some further up the draft board, Jackson Hayes brings a lot of that. He was sort of heavily tied to the Hawks in, in the pre-draft process. Maybe those people who tied Hayes to the Hawks sort of realized or talked to talked to people within the Hawks and knew that they wanted a rim-running center, somebody who can play like Hayes can, like Fernando can. You know, I think that's where Fernando comes in, and that's where he is able to you know, bring value even in his rookie year as just a, a lob threat and pick and roll, somebody who can roll hard to the rim and jump out of the gym to to go get a lob from Trey Young, somebody who can eventually protect the rim at a at a decent level on on the defensive end. I think he's got the athleticism to do that, but the sort of positioning, the fundamentals, the defensive IQ isn't quite there. That's why, you know, why you see him fall to the second round as compared to a guy like Jackson Hayes who has a little bit more of that defensive intelligence and is, is, a, is a better athlete, a, a more complete athlete than, than Fernando is. Fernando doesn't have any non-paint touch. Like he can't, 
you know, he's not going to be a, a solid free throw shooter. He's not going to be somebody who can space out to mid range at this point in his career. They'll probably work with him on that. But if they if they throw him out there and try to have him like take threes in practice, it's going to look a lot like Deontay Davis's threes did when we were at their practice in 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 the later part of the season when he just couldn't buy a bucket from from even those uncontested threes on the wing. Deontay Davis just couldn't make those. I think Fernando, if they throw him into that situation, maybe he can develop that in a you know long, long, long term. But he is not a not a a shooter by any means at this point. Oh, I disagree with you there by a lot. <laughs> I think Fernando can shoot the ball. Yeah, I think the Hawks, you know, with Collins and with Dwayne Dedman, Alex Lynn, I think the Hawks have shown that they can kind of get a feel for whether somebody is ready to shoot. And I think they have that feeling about Fernando. Like somebody, I think, I don't know if it was Draft Express or Jonathan Gavoni tonight tweeted kind of a slow motion picture of Fernando shooting. And it looks good. I mean, I. I, I mean, think it's compa- possible. I, I mean, think comparing him to Davis is is really doing him a disservice. I think he's going to be a much, much better shooter than that. He, but, I mean, he didn't take a, a ton of them over his two no, years at Maryland, but that doesn't sure. mean much. I mean, the Maryland system might not have, might have said, if you take a three, we're going to bench you, and so he didn't take very many of them. He was four for 13 over two years. Like, obviously, we, do, we can't look into that at all. 76% from the free throw line, 78% this past year. That's pretty good for a big man. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Maybe he can make his free throws and, and be, you know, your free throws sort of portend for, you know, three-point shooting down yep. the line. I think that's sort of the, the number you want to look at for, for a college kid is how, how good they are from the free throw line, how much touch they have from the free throw line sort of makes it is, – is a developmental tool for, for them shooting long-term. And so – Maybe it's there. It's not there right now, I don't think, but it's something that is certainly possible in his game long term. And uh, I, I don't even know if we mentioned this, but just by virtue of, oh, he's going to be part of it too. Shoot. By virtue of all these trades, like the Lakers Pelicans trade that can't happen until July 6th, that ties into the pick for Hunter. Uh, you know, there's a number 57 pick coming from New Orleans that is tied into the Fernando trade. So you're not going to see. Hunter right off the bat in Vegas. You're not going to see Fernando right off the bat in Vegas. And Reddish is hurt, so he's not going to play in Vegas at all. But I think, you know, one of the most interesting things to come out of Vegas will be, you know, what does it look like when Fernando shoots? I think that's that's one of the, you know, Vegas, I don't know. I don't think you – I honestly don't like Summer League that much. I've, I've grown tired of Summer League, and I don't think there are a lot of strong takeaways from it. But I think one of the things we'll see early on is, you know, whether they have Fernando taking threes and what does it look like? And and I'm kind of optimistic for it, to be honest. I also think, you know, I I agree with you that, you know, he's got a long way to go in terms of defensive recognition, but I think he's kind of a natural post player and and a good passer from the post. And I think Schlenk kind of loves good passers. I don't think he likes to add a whole bunch. I think he, you know, not every person on the Hawks is a good passer, but I think he's afraid of having a critical mass of non-passers, and that's kind of a bad thing. So I, I think they probably like the fact that he seems to be a relatively decent passer. Yeah, I mean, that's possible as well. I was not as high on his NBA level of, of passing as, as you seem to be. I think his 
you know, he had more turnovers than assists, which is not uncommon for a big man, especially, you know, a big man who's not necessarily as fundamental with his screen setting, with, you know, bringing the ball down when he gets an offensive rebound. There are, are non-passing turnovers exactly. that can, can yeah. obviously can be a big part of that. And so it's not, you know, the be-all, end-all that he was, you know, had more turnovers than assists. But I, I was not overly enthused, I guess, with the, the passing that I saw from him on film, but it wasn't something that I was super targeted in on. I sort of understood what he was as a as a rim runner, and that was sort of, maybe that colored what I thought of him as I was going through through his film, you know, a few weeks ago when I was doing his, his prep for the, for the draft. I thought that he, I sort of had it in my head, okay, this guy is a rim runner on both ends, so there's no real need to look at how he looks shooting the ball. I'm just gonna sort of assume he can't, but maybe he can, maybe he can be more of a, a, a post passer, maybe a post presence as a, as a, as a passer and a scorer. Maybe he can even, you know, be an elbow creator at some point down the line where you can, if he can hit that little mid-range jump shot from, from the elbow, you know, you have to guard him out there. He can be a little bit of a, of a, of a creator from that point of view, especially when Trey Young is out of the game. That would be helpful for them just to have another fulcrum of the offense. You know, I don't think that they are, they're looking for him to do that immediately. That's why he fell to the second round. Like, he's not, you know, he's not all of these things immediately, but if he can get there, you know, by 2021, that would be, that would be a really nice get for the Hawks. How many how many draft profiles did Peachtree Hoops do? Like eighty five. Wow! And for a sixty I player draft, so of them, of course, I, I know you didn't do all. You did a lot of them though. Um, I did like thirty. I we're we're recording this like through picks fifty through sixty or something like that were happening while we were recording. But you know, as as you went through the draft tonight, just looking at all the teams around the NBA, like which names did you see in the draft that just kind of absolutely floored you? I mean, I think some of I think Cam Johnson was the first pick that was like, oh my God, I can't believe he went that high when he went. I believe it was eleven yep. to uh, Phoenix to Phoenix, yep. of course, because they got that pick from Minnesota in the in the Dario Saric trade. The that was the first one that was like, oh, that that's a lot. Like that's way higher <laughs> than I had him. Like I thought he was going to go in like the twenty five range, and for him to go eleven was was much. It was just way higher than I expected him to go. And then, of course, there were, you know, there were second round picks. The way that Bull Bull fell did not surprise me personally. I thought that he was not somebody that I thought should have even been invited to the draft room. I didn't think that that was, I didn't think he was, I don't think, I don't believe in him at all as a prospect. I don't, you know, I had him 41 on my board, but that was only because some of the NBA teams that had talked to Jonathan Gavoni and the ESPN crew had him in the late lottery. So I was like, all right, well, he's got to have something that the fact that, you know, Gavoni had him at like 15 or something on his board, he had to know that the NBA was interested in him. But obviously, as it turned out, that, you know, Bull fell really hard, as, as about as hard as anybody in this draft. And so that didn't necessarily surprise me from my own evaluation of him, but it did surprise me from the overall sort of NBA evaluation of him that I thought coming into the draft. And he went to number 44, which was a Hawks pick. A Hawks pick that was effectively sold yeah, they sold that pick to Miami, and then Miami traded it to Denver, and so Bol Bol will end up in Denver. It'll be interesting to see what his career tra trajectory is, especially in light of the fact that that was at one point a Hawks pick that turned into. I mean, you can't, you can only add so many young big men. So, I mean, if you're going to have Fernando and Spellman, adding a third young big probably wasn't going to pan out, but it's it's still interesting nonetheless. I think a little bit. Yeah, and I think I mean I, I think of some of the other 
Some of the non the undrafted guys were are really interesting. I think Lou Dort out of uh, out of Arizona State. I had him at like 32 or 31, some somewhere right in the early part of the second round on my board. He went totally undrafted. I think you know certainly any team that can can come to an undrafted free agent agreement with him is is going to do very well. Terrence Davis, Jonte Porter, both of those guys were in my top 45. I really liked you know both of them. Daquan Jeffries is another name that was was interesting. Shamori Pons as well. So there are a lot of undrafted free agents out there, Naz Reed as well, Lewis King, Yovel Zusman out of Israel. Like there are a ton, a ton of undrafted free agents who have, who should have some value if, if you know, if the Hawks decide to go, if the, if the Hawks want to go with Shamori Pons as an undrafted free agent at their backup point guard spot, you know, that's not ideal because he's a rookie and all that, but like, or if he wanted to be their third point guard on that two-way two-way contract that would be a really good use of that two-way spot you know i think a lot of teams are going to yeah i think a lot of teams are going to have interest in a lot of the guys who went undrafted that was something that i targeted about this draft months ago as we were sort of getting into into the into the the pre-draft process after the ncaa season ended this draft was very low on superstar talent it's zion and then that's pretty much it if you believe in john morant then john morant as well but like this, there are not a lot of superstars. DeAndre Hunter, we just talked about, was the number four pick, was somebody that Atlanta traded up for, traded a bunch of assets to get. And even he is not, if he's your third or fourth option offensively, like that's pretty much his ceiling. You know, he's not going to be a creator. He's not going to be a, even a secondary creator. He's a third or fourth option at best. He's a good defensive player, but not like an overwhelming defensive player. And he went number four. So like this pick, this draft was very low on superstar talent, but like we just saw with all those undrafted free agents who were pretty decent, it's very, very long on guys who I think can be rotation level players at, at the NBA level from all the way from, you know, RJ Barrett and DeAndre Hunter all the way through down to like Lou Dort and Shamori Pons and some of the other guys who went undrafted in this draft. So there are a ton of rotation level players, even if there aren't a ton of superstars in this, in this year's draft. I agree. Uh, is there anything else you want to get to that we didn't get to in the course of this thing? No, I mean, I think we hit on everything. The trade value wasn't great for Hunter, but they got their guy, and that's something that Schlenk, you know, puts a lot of value on. He wants to get his guys. They had Reddish fall to them at number 10, which was which was nice after they traded number 8 to have the guy that they probably would have taken at 8 fall to them at 10. That worked out really well for them. They did not have to take a center in either Hayes or, or Goga or whatever. They didn't have to do any of that, which was nice. You know, Bruno Fernando, we'll see what he ends up being. I, I don't, you know... Like we we talked about, I'm not as high on him as, as perhaps they are. They've been right about this stuff more often than I have, so you know that's that's something that to to, to keep in mind. The roster is they have a better I budget think. than you. Yeah, they've got a better scouting budget, I would imagine, than I do. If they don't, <laughs> then that's a real problem. Uh, but I would imagine they've got more people in their scouting department than me by myself sitting here on my computer. Um, you know, so I would hope that they, you know, that they, I would think that they know more about Bruno Fernando than I do in terms of what his ceiling could be as a shooter, as a passer. Some of the things that you talked about that, that you saw that obviously you identified in a way that I did not, you would think that because they traded up to get him, that he, that's, that he's somebody that they identified in the same way that you did. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, I think they did maybe didn't get the maximum value out of the picks that they had in the space that they had coming in. But you, you know, it's hard to argue with the two big wings at the, at the top of the draft. And, you know, they got who they wanted, even if they had to pay a little bit more than you would have liked in a vacuum for those two picks. Actually, 
you saying that at the end kind of brought me to one thing that I wanted to ask you, which is in the NFL, there are certain positions that just naturally go to the top of the draft and some positions that just you're expected to get later in the draft is, is the NBA going, is, is Travis kind of on the front of a wave sort of realizing that what you really need to kind of draft are the medium sized wings. You can do a lot of things as opposed, you know, and then maybe you try to get centers later down the line and point, you know, you know, backup point guards and things like that later down the line. Is there a premium and is, is, is Travis kind of doing the right thing and, and putting an emphasis on that? Cause he had, he, could, he, so. he probably wanted that in previous drafts, but just kind of the guys he wanted were gone before he could get to number 19 and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that he, his, if his target overall is to take as many wings in the top 10 as he can, that's a very good target to have. I mean, certainly they have their point guard primary playmaker in Trey young and, and centers are a dime a dozen. You can find anybody who can play backup center for the minimum you can find backup point guards out there. So filling out the rest of your roster with twos, threes, and fours, that's how you win, especially threes. If you can find big threes like DeAndre Hunter in the draft in free agency, those guys are the guys who really get paid at a high level. And so those are the guys who you should target in the draft when they're cheaper for the first four years, plus restricted free agency and all that. So, you know, I think that from that perspective, he's, you know, he's done a very good job of targeting the right kinds of players from an archetype perspective, whether Hunter and Reddish work out as those kinds of, of high-end, you know, rotation starter players. We'll see, but he certainly is, is targeting the right type of players in, in the draft process. All right. I think that's a good place to end. Uh, I know it was a busy night for you, and I really appreciate you carving out the time to do this, especially yeah, as the non-Hawks portion of the draft was concluding. Yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a crazy draft with so many trades and everything. So you know everything is is fully updated on earlybirdrights.com as you're listening to this. Everything is is going to continue to be fully updated within minutes of transactions taking place. So you can follow that stuff on there. Read Petri Hoops for all your Hawks needs. Uh, there will be reddish uh, analysis up in the morning. There will be trade and hunter analysis as well. So you can find all of your your draft night takes. From, from me and Brad Rowland as well on Petri Hoops. And uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter at JG Siegel if you're interested in, in some more of the, the takes that I had on this podcast. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. So it'll go up sometime late tonight, early tomorrow, something like that. But I really Sounds appreciate good. it. I know this wasn't yeah. an easy time to do it. No, it's good. I, 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 I knew it was going to be nuts, and then I forgot about it. And then obviously uh, it worked out. It's totally fine. It just... Uh, was I'll just go back, jump back in there and start doing my uh, my post-draft work. I've got to write about Hunter and the trade and really flesh out my thoughts on that. So that's All the right. plan. I look forward to it. Sounds good. Thanks. Th thank you.